Good morning. I'm getting set up here. If you would take out your bulletin and open it, or if you've got a Bible, a real one, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I wonder how many, this is going to be easier, for, oh, thank you. Children, if there are children in here, it's time to be dismissed. Any kids here? Okay. Um, just a little test here, especially of you guys. How many people in here, how many people think you know from where you're sitting here what the four cardinal directions are from here? What's north, south, east, and west? Huh? Uh, a lot of guys, a few girls. Yeah. yeah, thank you. No, that's actually north. But. How, how many people in here think that you know precisely the geographic coordinates for where we are? Any, without looking at your phone. Anybody? About 34 degrees north, 94 degrees west. You know, being oriented is really important. My little brief career in the Army taught me that because one of the things they make you do is land navigation. You go out into uh, an area and you have to, you've got a compass and you've got a grid map of where you are and it's got very refined points on it. I bet you some of you guys who go out into the forest know this a lot better than I do. But, you know, their point is if you need to call in close air support or if you need a medevac, you really need to know precisely where you are. It's just a part of what they teach you, which is understandable. The same thing's true for us in the Christian life. It's vitally important that we know where we are in the Christian life. The passage we're going to look at this morning, the whole purpose of it is to tell you where you are. There's hardly a passage you could look at in the Scripture that's not more compacted in describing salvation and reminding the readers of where they are in Christ. There's a great correlation, I think, between the audience to which Peter was writing and us. <clears throat> you, I wasn't here, unfortunately, to hear Scott last week, but I'm sure he said, Peter begins his writing of this letter to them by, by calling them exiles. And the commentators are pretty clear that this maybe probably wasn't just that they'd been kicked out of Israel. This was probably a a reference or a metaphor for the fact that Christians live in a world which is alien to them, and they are alien to it. So in that sort of world, you often don't have a good orientation of that world because it's telling you one thing, and, and God is telling you another thing. It's the same thing that's true for us today. For the first time in my memory, Christians are going to be a minority. So we have out with some friends last week, and the lady said, gosh, it's just kind of weird because all of a sudden we're in the minority. Our values are not treasured. Our values are not upheld. I'd like to tell you that's great for us. Whatever that, however that may offend my personal political sensibilities, it's the greatest time to show Christ. But we have to stay oriented to who we really are because there's a competitive view. It's as if someone was putting another map up with another set of coordinates and telling you that's where you are. Peter, if you remember his story, you know, this is the great apostle, Peter, unparalleled in the church. He is the one of which 
I think it was in Mark 13 where Jesus says, you know, who do you say who do you say that I am? He says, You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And he said, Your name's Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And there's a lot of controversy about that, but really, you can't really argue the fact that Peter had a seminal position in the church as like an over shepherd. And if you read in the rest of First Peter, as we will, you'll see at the end, he calls himself a shepherd, an elder. This is Peter at his shepherding best because he knows he's talking to a group of people who are in a life situation in which it's very hard to know what's up, down, north, south, east, and west. And he is, going to, he is going to tell them some vitally important things they need to do as the book goes on. The next thing he's going to tell them after we get through this passage is you need to live holy lives. You need to be separated in in morality from the things that are around you. He's going to tell them that, in fact, you need to be, you're, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You represent Christ here. Christ is the cornerstone, but you are, as it were, being built into an edifice to glorify God. He's going to tell them how to suffer and maintain their faith. Now, this is the first time in my memory, I know it's certainly been there, but not, not like it is here, where Christians are, even in our country, often tried in their faith. And it's very difficult, I think, for some Christian, for us to orient ourselves to that. There's nobody in the world who hates discomfort more than me. I'm a big whiner and complainer. And so when things go wrong, I am, it throws me off. I'm telling you, Peter's going to tell us this is a time for us to be for us to have this special position at this special time is a way for us to stay, and a way for us to stay oriented is to realize that there's great hope in suffering. There's reason for it. So, if you look up here on the, I hope this Prezi thing doesn't get in the way if it's not distracting, because to me it's very helpful. You know, if you look at it, he's going to write a very complicated set of sentences, which I'll read in a minute, and I want you to follow along with me, but that starts with God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it ends up in your sure salvation. And those four points, those five points, I mean, in the middle there, are your orientation points. He's saying, in the great story that God started, of which you're a recipient, let me tell you some things that will orient you. So let's read through this. I'll read it out loud. If you'll look at your Bible or at your inserting your bulletin. And as I read it, I'm going to ask you to stop and circle some words. It just so happens I know this passage in a different version, so if I get the words confused, you'll, you'll figure it out. Blessed or praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy He has caused us. Circle great mercy, circle cause. Us to be born again, circle born again. Born again. To a living hope, circle living hope, or draw an arrow to living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, underline Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, circle inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded, circle guarded, through faith, underline faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, circle various trials, so that the testing, or the tested, circle that genuineness of your faith, circle or underlined faith, more precious than gold that 
which perishes, which is tested by fire, may be found to result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. And obtain is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving you, not themselves, and that in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these are things into which angels long to look. What an incredibly rich summary. There's no way I can give you any more than a little taste. But as we go through this, I want you to look at your Bible or these verses and not at me. Because I'd like to really say to you, you really need to go back this afternoon or this week and dig into this. It'll be so rich to you, you won't believe it. It starts with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't slip over that part. Lord means King. Jesus means Savior. Christ means the sent Messiah. So how is he related to God? The God we're going to talk about who initiated all this? Well, as to his earthly person, he was completely, he was holy as much a person as you are. The Father was his God. And, and, and as, the son of, as the Son of God, as deity... God was his father. You see this referenced on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the end, when it's done, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see the connection? Peter's reminding us of that here. He assumes that you understand that the person we're going to talk about is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, it's because because of his great mercy. So he wants us to concentrate on the mercy of God. That salvation is linked to the mercy of God. If you think your salvation is linked to your goodness as a person, or to something you can do, or something you inherited, or something you can learn, you're mistaken. It's linked to the mercy of God. The mercy of God is that quality in him that is such as any innate quality is, he can't defy it. God is merciful. He's just merciful. He's not merciful because you deserve mercy. On the contrary, mercy means you don't deserve it at all. It's somebody who has compassion on someone and has the ability to set things right even though the person doesn't deserve it. So as we look at this, keep in mind this is God's compassion that's driving this. It says praise to him. I think Peter's idea is at the very end we'd all stand up and go, wow, praise God, what a God. So he says, because of his great mercy, you were born again, born anew. What does that remind you of? John 3. Great religious leader comes to Jesus and he's trying to kind of schmooze up to Jesus. And Jesus stops him and he says, hey, you need to know this. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. This guy spent his life being a good Pharisee, learning all about this. And he said, no. You've got to be born again. What does that mean? That's one of those words we slide over too fast. 
There is a new birth, a new creation. You're a different person now than you were before. I would reference you to some things like 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of the first verses I knew because I knew that I was not a person who could go to heaven. This says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. You're not just a better version of who you were. You're a new creature. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, it says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, you'll be revealed in glory. You're not just a better version of somebody who now has some information or prayed the four spiritual laws. In Christ, you are a completely new person. If you look in Colossians 2, it says, He is the firstborn among many brethren. God is starting a new people. These are people who have the life of Adam in them, and they have the spirit of Christ in them, such as you are. We are different. We've been born again. And what was the causal agent of that? It says here, he caused this. The Father caused it. This was something we learned in Ephesians that he planned from before time, before he created the world, he planned this to happen. He planned for that day for me. One day in my room in Lubbock, I pulled out this little booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws, and I said, I don't know exactly what this means, but I know I need to do this. I need to embrace Christ to become part of his story and to give up my life for myself and to accept what he did for me on the cross. And probably most of you in here have done the same thing. When that happened, it was the result of what God caused. It's something God did. If you are insecure about your salvation or your Christian faith, it's because that's not quite clear in your mind yet. It's something God caused. And the scripture is replete with examples of why that is so. But what did he do? He caused us to be born again to what? Into a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the dead. So what would be opposed to a living hope? By the way, hope, hope means not something you're, oh, I hope this happens. It's not that. In the New Testament, hope means it's a certainty. It's a thing that's going to happen. Sometimes it's happening, you're experiencing it. Sometimes it's something that's going to happen. Here it must be talking about a reality, a living reality, not a dead reality. It, this speaks to the very heart of the Christian life. If you look at your Christian life and you think, there's just nothing much here. I mean, I heard of somebody that I love dearly who said, you know, if this is all there is, thank you that I'm saved, it's just not enough. Wow, that is such a misunderstanding. This is a living reality. I think this should prompt us to think about John chapter 15, Jesus' analogy of the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Meaning we're linked to him vitally. A living hope would be a lively hope. That's what one of the commentators calls it. A, a vital, a robust, there's some life flowing through here. Now, I'll tell you, I'll be very frank with you. In my estimation, how do you get that vitality? You get in this, and you bring it to him, and you say, please show me who you are and who I am and how I'm to live, and he'll do it. That's a daily transaction. I'm, I'm sorry to be so frank about this. Little time in the Word, little vitality. A lot of time in the Word and prayer, a lot of vitality to your spiritual life. You don't need to be looking for some experiences. You need to be looking for time with Christ. That's where you gain life. 
That's why we call it a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Meaning two things. First of all, Jesus is alive. If he's not alive, folks, we're the biggest suckers in the world. If the resurrection isn't real, we got nothing. Paul said that. To of all men to be pitied. But we do believe there was a resurrection. That's one of the things you've got to say. You can't explain how Peter went from who he was to who he is without the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Christ. That's one of the pillars of our faith. So it means that you can have fellowship with him, and it means, furthermore, that you're going to be resurrected. Your life is not going to end right here. If somebody doesn't know this, if somebody is a what's called a naturalist or a materialist, it, it would say, the cosmos is all there is, it's all there ever was, we're a random accretion of heavy elements, we somehow evolved from something to something, and that's who we are, and life has no meaning and no purpose whatsoever. That is a dead hope. There is no hope. There's nothing further to go. There is nowhere to go from there. If... if the only thing you can do is keep yourself severely distracted so you won't remember that. Try to get all the hobbies, try to make as much money, try to have as much fun, because there is no hope. But in Christ, there's a living hope because you're going to be raised from the dead. In two, the second thing, a priceless inheritance. An inheritance which can't be diminished. It's imperishable. It's going to go on. It's not going to fade. It's not like one of those things you get in the world and you really like it at first and then it just kind of wears off and you don't like it as much. Actually, if anything, as time goes through eternity, I think we don't understand what this is going to be, so we don't think about it. So the orientation parts for us so far are you want to remember that you were born again to a living hope and that you've got an inheritance in heaven waiting for you. Jesus said, I go there to prepare a place for you, right? And I'm going to come back and get you. He's preparing you for that. He's preparing that for you. So he's going to come back and get you and take you to a place, and I'd have to say the scripture even teaches an assignment, a thing that you're going to be doing for eternity. You're being prepared, and it's being prepared for you. And it won't pass away. Jesus, I mean, Paul said in Corinthians, what I have seen and ears heard and man has imagined doesn't, isn't, comparable to what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what's coming for us. But you say, yeah, but I'm living in the life here and now. You are. And look at this promise. It's to you who are protected by, God, or by God's power being protected, shielded, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Not only is that inheritance being protected for you, but you're being protected for it. If you think so, you're misunderstanding the Christian life. Even David in the Old Testament understood this. Everybody probably loves Psalm 91. Psalm 91, 14 through 16 says, this is David speaking, because he, or the, the psalmist, because he holds fast to my love, Jesus is saying this about the believer, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls me, I'll answer him, I'll be with him in trouble, I'll rescue him, I'll honor him. With a long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. Such is the relationship that Christ has in being your protector. He's watching over you. If you think you're alone in this thing, you're completely mistaken. One of your orientation points needs to be that you're involved in a living daily hope with Christ, that you have something that's coming in heaven for you now that you've been born again, 
and that you're being protected for that. He's watching over your life. One of my dearest memories of being a little kid, when I'd fall asleep, I'd yell out to my dad, Dad, you watching over me? Yes, son, I'm watching over you, and I'd go to sleep. You can do that every day, every minute with Christ. Yeah, I'm watching over you. If you don't believe it, it's in here. But then we go, wait a minute, you're protecting me, and yet life seems pretty darn hard. There are trials. There are trials, there are troubles, there are tribulations. And as I said before, the person who's outside Christ, if you're here and you're outside Christ, there's no reason for that. There's no redemptive value to that. It's just a bad deal. And sometimes we as Christians, and I foremost go, ah, I hate it. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through trials. A whole lot of First Peter, you better get used to it, is about suffering. It's about trials. You don't know if these people were actually suffering persecution in the sense they were being killed or anything. But they're definitely in an alien environment in which they're being ostracized for their faith. Such as you and I are about to be. That's okay. That's okay. Because God makes a reason to it. What is the reason? He says here, so that your faith... I'll read it to you again. If you rejoice now for a little while, if for necessary reasons, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold, tested by fire, will result in praise and glory at the honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is going to have this really important reason. Believe me, you're going to be glad for it someday. You're going to go into heaven. You don't want to be the only person up there with no scars because you grooved out such a happy life for yourself. Paul's going to have scars. Peter's going to have scars. Jesus has scars. In Hebrews it says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the, sh he despised the shame, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. There's a way to look at the trials we have in life so as to say, these are redemptive. They make me share in the suffering of Christ. You wait till we get to 1 Peter 4. That whole chapter is about how you fellowship with Christ through hard times. I bet you can testify like I do. No hard times? Eh, kind of la-di-da. When I'm under hard times, I'm pretty close to him. I really, really want time with him. In fact, it says here, uh, though you don't see him, you believe in him. Though you've not seen him, you love him. You know when the love and the belief really get strong? It's when you're tested. Can you think of anything? Can you think of anything that you're being pushed into or asked to advance into that you're not tried for? You're in school, you're a student, what are they going to do? They're going to teach you, and then they're going to test you. You're an athlete, and you're going to progress. You're going to be tested. You're going to be pushed. If you're a weight lifter, you've got to advance by lifting more weight. There's nothing I could think of in life. There's no example where you advance by not being pushed and tested. And such it is with the Christian life. Don't be, Peter tells us later, don't be surprised. This is common to all believers. I will tell you at this point, though, there's something you need to know. This is the point where you need to huddle up with other people who are so oriented as you are. That's really important. If you're surrounded by people who are looking for the ease and luxury of life, you're going to get disoriented. Back in one of the parables, you know, Jesus says, he's explaining the things that can knock us off track and make us non-productive, and he says... The worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire just for other things. If you're around people and that's what they're after, 
you're going to get disoriented. So when your faith is tried, there's a purpose. You're purified by it. Such that you have a sure salvation. The last paragraph there, which I won't read again to you, but it's pretty amazing. It says the Old Testament prophets were looking at this going, this is incredible. When's this going to happen? Who's this going to be for? And even the angels who are much stronger, much purer moral beings than we are, and who this is the whole cosmos is evident to them, it says they long to look into this. Do you realize what that means? In the whole, I think C.S. Lewis had this right. In the whole universe, this, this planet here is the test spot. This is where it's happening. This is where, if there's ever a question in the history of the universe from now on, is God a good God? It says in Ephesians 2, we are his trophy room, as it were. You're going to be able to look at us and go, this was a physically, morally, mentally deficient, a weak person in universal terms. And yet Christ came and lived in them, redeemed them, and made them into this. And so you're going to be on display in heaven. You don't want to be there with no faith. You don't want to be there with no scars. You want to be there having been purified by what he takes you through. So, five orientation points to see the entire picture that God the Father initiated in us such a sure salvation. In a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You know, one thing that really is just fantastic to me is that today, in this 24-hour period, millions of people are going to come before this table. And they're going to take this because this is a reminder of us that Christ has drawn us into fellowship with him. That's why he calls it the Lord's table. If you go sit at somebody's house and you're at their table, you've been invited into that. So you're about to be invited into the Lord's table. And what's more than that, probably hundreds of millions in the 2,000 years of Christ, this has been a common place we come. And we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we've been born again to a living hope, to an, uh, a precious inheritance, to a purified faith and a sure salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. I would say, wow, praise you, Father. Praise you for drawing us into something far beyond what we could have comprehended. I am so content to live my humdrum life and forget to be oriented to what you said is true. Father, help us escape from that. Help us repent of that. It's not just about being in our lane. It's about being part of the story of redemption that you brought us to in Christ. And we thank you very much for that in his name. Amen.